Let me invite you to get your Bibles now and turn to the book of Exodus. I know we were done with Exodus. We finished up Exodus. Um, But honestly, um, when I came to this passage, I thought to myself, um, we have to to go back and we have to take time to do this. Um, I want to invite you then to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. And I'm going to warn you up front, um, you may want to have your Bible handy, uh, however you want to kind of work with that. We're going to be jumping about. I'm going to be um, quoting a lot of scripture today. I'm not expecting you to turn to everything, so I try to put as much as I can on the screen um, because of the nature of what's going on in our passage this morning. So Exodus chapter 34, and let's stand together and let's read verses 5 through 7. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, the him is Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Lord, we ask now for your help. Lord, we we want to come before you humble and teachable today, but Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to, to illuminate, Lord, your truth. And Lord, I ask that as your mouthpiece today, that you would allow me, Lord, to proclaim your truth as you, uh, as you have revealed it in such a way, Lord, that we will be impacted and shaped and formed to be like your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us now? We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. As you know... We went through this text briefly uh, a a few weeks ago as we are in chapter 34, but we were studying it in its greater context. And the greater context there was the, 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 the glory of God's restoration because God was restoring Israel at this particular point in time. And this was all part of that restoration. And this is where God was, was sharing, uh, that he would restore Israel, uh, not, to Moses, but Moses was going to take that back, and, and they were going to be covenanted once again. And if you remember that time, you may not remember, but I took these two verses, verses 6 and 7, and just identified that verse 6 is talking about God's kindness, and verse 7 is talking about God's justice. And today, I would like for us to consider these two verses in greater detail. And, and in a sense, as, as the, the fullest self-revelation and description of God by God himself. And we will find that this text is leaned on and quoted and alluded to the most throughout the Old Testament and eventually culminating in the person of Jesus Christ when we get to the New Testament. Some scholars have said that Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 is to the Old Testament what John 3.16 is to the New Testament. In other words, it is such an an important text 
because it is quoted and referenced and alluded to so regularly. I mean, let me give just a few examples to show you what I'm talking about. From the law, then from the Psalms, and then from the prophets. The idea there is where this is the whole Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18, this is 40 years after uh, this is revealed by God, Israel has once again turned uh, against God. They've been living sinfully, and, and, and Moses now pleads with the Lord to restore his relationship with them. And they're, they're, they're responding in, in, in fear because the 12 tribes, if you remember, went out and they spied the land, and they're like, we can't do this. And, and these, these same characteristics, these same qualities, these same aspects in verses 6 and 7 of our text are repeated here in Numbers 14, 18. And then as we turn to the Psalms, we find David once again leaning on this particular text. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's Psalm 86, verse 15. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's said again in Psalm 145, verse 8. This is pressing into the rest of the text of the Old Testament. And then even in the Minor Prophets, there are three places in particular, Joel, Jonah, and Nahum, but just focus in on Joel. Return to the Lord, Joel says, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Where are they getting the ideas here? Where are they getting the language from? How do they know to describe God this way? Because in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God revealed himself to Moses, to the people, in this description. Now, if we go back to our text, Exodus 34, and I want you to notice verse 5. Because in verse 5, it says there that God is revealing his name. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Now, names in the Bible are always significant. They're always important. And it's certainly true here because the name of the Almighty is a declaration of his very essence. You want to know who God is? You know what he's like in his character. You want to know his name, all right? God reveals his name. That means his whole being, his character. That's why we have in the Lord's Prayer Jesus saying, this is how you are to pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What name? The name that we have revealed here in the book of Exodus. This is his very being. This is who he is. This is who God is in his glory and his majesty described for us in this text. He is holy in his whole being. And this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 20 verse 1, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So it's not just the name. I know it's quoting a name and somehow there's power in just that name. No, it's talking about the, the whole being. We say the name of the Lord is here to protect me. That means God in, in everything that he is, is here, full born, ready to go, locked and loaded on behalf of his people. That's his name. So we're being told in verse 5 of our text that God himself is proclaiming 
declaring or revealing who he is in his being and character. Now, if you remember, it was God who revealed himself to Moses for the first time at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. In that encounter, God revealed himself as the I am who I am, which literally means to be. Or better, he is the self-sufficient, self-existing, eternal, inexhaustible God. And God tells Moses to say to the people of Israel that I am has sent me to you. And then in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Exodus, God tells Moses to say to the people that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, has sent me to you. And we need to remember that with the ESV translation in particular, and in some other modern translations like the New American, the word translated Lord, all caps, is referring to Yahweh in the Old Testament, which is what we have here in Exodus chapter 3. So, in this name, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God was revealing to Moses that he is the self, self-existing and all-sufficient God of the universe. He is the I Am. And the way he, he reveals that is by, by words. And throughout the book of Exodus, God has been adding to that declaration of who he is by his actions, by what he does. And so we see it then in his power and his authority and his wisdom and his sovereignty in his providence with Israel. And so what we have here now is we, we look back to chapter 34. God, having restored his relationship with Israel, now follows through on his promise to show Moses his glory. And what we have here is God revealing himself as Yahweh, but in a fuller and deeper way. And the repetition of this idea of Lord, Lord, is is like a poetic way of of saying, look, I I have something important to you to say. This is me. It's kind of like Jesus saying, truly, truly. We have that in the New Testament. So here is God saying, this is important. And for Israel, these two verses are a working definition of God. They'll become, in a sense, Israel's confession of faith. Yet they're not just for Israel. They're also for us. And so as we delve into this wonderful picture of Christ's character, we quickly realize that it is for us a call to embrace the fullness of God's revelation of himself by himself. Let me say that again. It's a call to embrace the fullness of God's revelation of himself by himself. This is not someone else describing God. This is God himself describing himself. And this is not just given to us to give us theory about God. This is given to us so that we will be moved to worship him, to trust him, to live for him with greater confidence and vigor. And our time this morning will lead us through three statements. The first two flowing out of the structure of this text. The third one will flow out of the content of the text into the rest of Scripture. So we're going to be talking about the character of God revealed, the character of God applied, and then the character of God celebrated. First of all, the character of God revealed. In verse 6, we will encounter five attributes of God's 
character. Now, they're all words that we know. (laughs) They're words that we use to talk about God. They're part of our Christian vernacular. We understand them to be attributes of God. But we should do well to be sure that we have a good and right understanding of what they actually mean. So look at verse 6 again with me. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those are the five things. So let's look at the first one, merciful. Now this word merciful is rightly translated in other translations, compassionate. It's a word related to the Hebrew word for womb. And some, uh, so it communicates that God knows and feels our needs in a similar way that a mother can sense the needs for her helpless baby. It's compassion for that child. So this, this word is used to describe a person's core. It's used to describe uh, that intense emotion that a mother would have or to be deeply moved. Now, some of you, when you come to church or maybe after church or when I see you, you'll see me every once in a while, I'll go to you and I'll do this, right? And you're like, Pastor, don't do that. You know, I'm not that important. But, but there, there's a reason why this was done. You might have seen, you know, old you know, movies or something like that. There's Queen Elizabeth, you know, the first, and there's some guy just got off the boat and he's coming to see the queen and he comes up to her and he, he does this, right? You've seen that before. What is that? Is that just kind of a fancy way of kind of greeting? Well, it actually is a threefold kind of movement here. It's saying, I'm greeting you with my head, I'm greeting you with my heart, and I'm greeting you with my bowels. And you're like, I got you with the head and the heart, but the bowels thing, that, I, that doesn't connect. And the reason it doesn't connect is because we don't think of it in those terms. But this, this word, this idea of emotions, this idea of intense emotions or being deeply moved has the idea of coming from within. So when a person greets them like that, head, heart, and, and bows, it's saying, I'm greeting you with my whole being. So now everyone's going to be doing this to each other when they come to church, right? This is a full greeting. Now That's the idea behind it, right? Now, if, you, if you've ever grown up with the King James Version, you may have remembered a particular verse where, where we are being encouraged to, to have compassion on others, and it talks there about having bowels of compassion. It's like bowels of compassion. It's the same idea here. It's having compassion that comes from that core, all right? Now, let's, let's illustrate this a little bit. Um, with some, some scriptural illustrations. This theme of compassion then is illustrated a number of times in scripture and probably best, in my opinion, with the encounter that King Solomon has with two mothers that come to him. If you remember the story, it's in 1 Kings 3. Both mothers lived in the same house. Both gave birth to a child. Sadly, one of those children died. And so they both come claiming that the living child belongs to them. What's Solomon going to do? This is a dilemma. How can he determine whose child this is? Who the mother actually is of this living child? And so the answer to 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 the question is he's going to expose the mother's compassion. And so what he does is he says, all right, here's my answer. I'm going to cut the child in half and I'm going to give you both a part of it. And the true mother 
responds with compassion and says, no, no, no. She's willing to not have the child so that that child can live out of compassion because she knows that child is hers. And so Solomon wisely says, then this is your child. But it all comes out of this idea of compassion. So this word is not just an emotional word, it's also an action word. We see it in, as God interacts with, with Israel in Egypt, in the wilderness, and in the land. Just think about this. In the book of Exodus that we've been studying, and if you're visiting with us, we have a lot of references to Exodus just because we've been there for the last year and a half. And so for, for many of us, it's pretty fresh. So we have God with, with Israel uh, basically suffering as slaves in Egypt under the heavy hand of Pharaoh and his taskmasters, and they cry out to God for rescue, if you remember that. And God hears their cry and is compelled by his compassion to rescue them. Then he rescues them, and now they're in the wilderness, and they don't have water, they don't have food, and God, again, in his compassion, is, is, is taking care of them like they are his own child, right? They are the children of God, right? So he provides for them food and water and clothing and guidance. But sadly, even through the years, as, as Israel continues on, they turn away from God, they begin to worship other gods, and now God would bring judgment on them. And ultimately we find in that judgment, in the book of Isaiah in particular, this language where we find God's mercy and compassion is spoken of in terms of a mother's love for her child. Listen to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, and there's a few of them right in this same area of scripture. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Now here's verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Isaiah is a book of coming judgment, but in the back of that judgment is the promise that God has not and will not forget his people. So God is full of motherly compassion. He will rescue his people but it's not just motherly compassion. In fact, we sang about that today. It's also fatherly compassion. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And of course, in the New Testament, we find that Jesus is God's deep compassion toward his people. They are like sheep without a shepherd, we're told, Mark chapter 6. Jesus embraces the sick and the suffering. He is compassionate toward them. He's deeply moved by their suffering. He compares himself to a mother hen using her wings to shield her chicks from danger. And then in the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus demonstrates his compassion by sympathizing with our weakness, by being tempted in every way that we're tempted. But he, he's not sinning when he's tempted, but he understands our weakness. He's compassionate. He cares. This is the first attribute, merciful, compassionate. The second attribute is gracious. 
The idea here is that God is kind to, uh, toward us even when we don't deserve it. Can you relate to that? Is God ever kind to you when you don't deserve it? Have you ever been treated graciously by someone else when you deserve actually to be treated badly because you did something? The word gracious literally means a gift of favor. And we often use it in that sense. We talk about favor. I mean, you're, you're walking around someplace you've never been to, and you're like, i got to use the restroom. And so you stop someone because you can't see any signs. and say, excuse me, sir, do you, do you know where I can, can find the restrooms? Can you, can you do me a favor and tell me where they are? And so they do you a favor, and they tell you where you are. And you're not like, well, thank you. Now let me pay you for doing me that favor. We just kind of use that language by saying, this is a gift. I'm, I'm giving this to you. I'm just gracious to you by letting you know this information. But we know that even in asking that question, we're interrupting them from something. They're, they're going about their own business, but we're stopping them. We're asking a question. But it's a gift that they give us. And you do the same thing when people ask you that question. Now, as we think about some examples from Scripture, we begin with the book of Esther. The book of Esther, if you remember, Esther goes on behalf of her people before King Artaxerxes. And she falls at his feet and she's weeping and she's pleading to him for favor. This is what we have in Esther 8.5. And she said, if it pleased the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleased in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letter. She's, she's asking for favor. She's asking for, for the king to act on her behalf and on Israel's behalf. It's a gift. It's a favor. But the most extreme kind of favor is when you give someone something when they do not deserve it. And for that, I want you to think about the story of, of Jacob and Esau. Now, if you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, there was this tension between these two brothers. I mean, right from the womb. But ultimately, Jacob, the deceiver, with his mother's help, would usurp his brother's birthright and receive his brother's blessing and it was all done by deception and after he did that he he got out of town because he knew his brother was angry with him 20 years later Jacob is met by God and he has a he has a, a kind of a, a a desire to to be reconciled to his brother and he wants to be honest and he wants to be truthful and so he, he's on this journey, and he sends a messenger ahead. And he asks for that messenger to say, Jacob is coming, and he wants to make things right. And this is what the message says. This is Genesis 32, verse 5. He says, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. Now, he's, he's not saying that to say, oh, look at me. He's saying, look, I, I am coming with the goods to make reconciliation. I have sent to tell my, my, uh, my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. He is asking now, for favor. Now get this, Jacob isn't asking for what is just, in other words, what he deserves. He's asking for favor, which is what he doesn't deserve. And Esau, surprisingly, even if you're reading the story, you're surprised by his response. He chooses to delight in his brother and show him grace and favor that he doesn't deserve. It's a wonderful story. So graciousness is having a generous spirit 
to grant favor when a person doesn't deserve it. Of course, this is what God does when Israel offends him by building this golden calf and bowing down to it. He, he is being gracious to them. They don't deserve this reconciliation. They don't deserve for the covenant to be restored. But that's what happens. And of course, we find this in the New Testament with Christ because this idea of charis, this grace, is God's graciousness toward us in paying for our sins. That's why we read in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love in, uh, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's graciousness. We don't deserve it. We're sinners, and yet this is what he does. So merciful, gracious. Third, slow to anger. I know a few weeks ago we kind of walked through this, but let me walk through it again. Do you remember the story of Potiphar and and, and, um, and, and Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And, and Potiphar thought that Joseph had tried to sleep with his wife. And when he hears about what at least was perceived to be true, the report that his wife gives, Potiphar's anger was kindled. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, his nose burned hot. And the idea of anger in the Old Testament literally means to be hot of nose. It means that, and it's, it's a picture, right? It's, it's, it's saying, look, when people get angry, what happens? Their whole face turns red, right? You know what I'm talking about. In particular, this person's nose. And so it became this, this picture of saying, this is what anger looks like. And so to be, to be long of nose means that you, it takes you longer for your nose to get hot. God is patient. He's long of nose, it takes him longer for his nose to get hot because he is deliberately long of nose. He's deliberately patient with us. Now remember the story of Moses and the Egyptian in Exodus chapter 2? Moses responds to this Hebrew being whipped by an Egyptian. How does he respond? He responds in anger. And what does he do? He murders him. He's hot of nose. And you know what it's like. You see a child being bullied. You see a, a, a woman being mistreated by her boyfriend. You see a senior saint being, being taken advantage of. It's, it's natural for you to get angry at that kind of injustice. And in the same way, when God looks down and sees how man oppresses another, he is hot of nose but he's also slow to anger. He's long of nose, which means he gives people lots of time to change. And you might say, you know what? That's true of me. <laughs> God has been long of nose with me. Okay, now I know when you think of long of nose, we automatically think of Pinocchio, right? But if you think of God, his nose is much longer than Pinocchio's could ever be. And he is that way toward us. This is the kind of God that is being revealed here by himself. Again, when God deals with Pharaoh in Egypt now, this is Exodus 7 through 12, we, we see his interaction that takes place because Pharaoh has enslaved the, the, the Israelites. He's taken the, the, the baby boys and he has had them killed in the Nile and he sends Moses to confront Pharaoh, and he gives him ten chances to let Israel go free. We call those the plagues. 
But each time there is a chance for him to bow down and to let his people go, what happens? He refuses. And God ultimately, when the armies of Egypt come out to destroy Israel, God ultimately then exercises his judgment on Egypt. Here's what happens though. God is long of nostrils. He's patient, he's patient, he's patient, he's patient. But there comes a time when that nose stops. And justice now is going to come. God would not be just if he did nothing about Pharaoh's oppressive actions toward Israel. And God hands Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own decision. This is what you want. I'm going to give you over to it. And then, of course, in Romans chapter 1, we find the same language, don't we? The same language that describes to us what happens to people when they ignore God's graciousness and his kindness. In fact, Romans 1.18, this is what we read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being poured out. And then we read three times, and God gave them up or gave them over to their sinful pleasures. This is what God does. He gives people over as the means of judgment. This is what happens when his nose is no longer long. He's long of nose. The fourth one, steadfast love. This is what we read as we began this morning. We look around the world today, everyone's trying to champion this word love and kind of backfill it with their own thinking. They, they see it as simply a feeling or emotion. They confuse it with lust or attraction. But the love that is being talked about here is a loyal and steadfast covenant love. One commentator describes it as a long-term reliable loyalty. I mean, a couple of illustrations, not getting into great detail here, but if you know the story of Ruth and Naomi, what marks out Ruth is that she is loyal to Naomi. Other people make the comment that her love is this hesed love, this covenant love. Again, as God deals with Israel over and over and over again, we see his steadfast love, his steadfast love. Hosea compares Israel's steadfast love to a morning mist. It's there for a little bit and it's gone. But God, his said, is enduring. In Psalm 136, which we read 26 times in telling the history of Israel, says his love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. We would probably talk about our lives in that poem in the same way. You know, I moved from, from Israel to Germany, his love endures forever. I moved from Germany to England, his love endures forever. I moved from England to the United States, his love endures forever. This is my story, by the way, right? You're like, well, how in the world did you start from there? Who's moving from Israel to Germany? That's not in the Bible, right? I moved from Michigan to South Carolina, his love endures forever. I met my wife, his love endures forever. I have my kids. Well, something endured forever, but we'll continue on there. But you get the point. There's this resonating theme. And this is true of Israel, and this is true of us. We who are his children have a God whose love endures forever. He is committed to us. 
And that commitment is not just commitment by itself. It is a covenant commitment. He's promised to do this. He's faithful to that. Finally, this last one is faithfulness, which literally means he's true, he's reliable. We see this this picture. If you remember the story in Exodus where where, uh, Israel's fighting the Amalekites and Moses has to raise his hands, and as he raises his hands, Israel is prevailing, and as he drops his hands, Amalek is prevailing, and you have you have um, Aaron and, and her that come and raise his hands up. And in the text, this is how it says it. It says uh, they, they kept his hands up so that he would remain steady. That's the same word, faithfulness, reliable, true. When this word is used to describe people, it means that they are trustworthy. This is why Moses calls God a rock saying that he is faithful, he's just, he's upright. He is dependable. He is reliable. You can trust God to be consistent with his character. Again, when when Israel uh, goes out and sends the spies out, they come back and say, we can't go in there. Why are there giants in the land? Well, they eventually go into the land. If you remember a little bit later, there's a young, unassuming man, actually boy, that God raises up. To face one of those giants and his name is David and no one else will go out to challenge this Goliath character but when David goes out there and Goliath throws his insult here's what David says he says you come with a sword and a spear but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of armies whom you have defied I come with the full orbed character of God who do you think is stronger and David's saying it's not me you're not fighting against me you're fighting against the name of the Lord he is faithful he is reliable he is trustworthy of course David was known for being trustworthy even Solomon says in 1 Kings 3 speaking to God you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you but you know as Israel divided the question then became is God really trustworthy I mean because the the people of Israel just kind of started to crumble, right? And then they continue in their sin. What is happening? Is God trustworthy? Is he going to continue to do what he promised that he would do? And that's why when we open the pages of the New Testament to the first words in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, here is what we're told. The beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's a reminder, God has not forgotten to be faithful. He is still that covenant God. He is still doing what he said he would do. He's been faithful all along, so God is trustworthy. He's reliable and faithful and worthy of our allegiance. And we take all of these attributes as a whole. We understand that God is the main character in every text of Scripture. And in that, he is consistently revealing himself to us through his dealings with Israel. 
So every time you open your Bible, every time you're reading some story, every time you're reading a text, you're asking yourself, what is this teaching me about the character of God? How is this either adding to some of these attributes that are revealed here? How is this explaining them? How is it illustrating them? Because God wants us to see him. Now, these are all the revelations of God's character. Now let's jump into verse 7, which I'm calling... The, the application of God's character, the character of God applied. Now, when we consider how God's character is applied here, we see that it's actually a comparison between two groups. You may not have seen this, but I want to show it to you. There's two groups. There's the thousands. There's the generations, right? And so this verse unpacks the implications of God's character on mankind, both responses by mankind and God's subsequent actions toward mankind flow out of his character. He's going to respond differently to the thousands than he is to the generations. And there's a reason. And the reason he responds these two different ways is because his response is consistent with his character. It is because of God's character that these responses do and must take place. His character won't allow anything else. We have here God, in a sense, exercising his grace to the thousands and exercising judgment to the generations. See, many people think that God's judgment somehow betrays his character, right? You ask the average person, well, God is love. How could he exercise judgment? Because it, it it would be inconsistent with his character to not actually exercise judgment, It is not that God is fickle in his character, no. It is that he is faithful to his character and therefore must act accordingly. We'll see that here. First of all, I want you to notice verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Here's forgiveness for the repentant. So what we read here is that thousands will listen to God and his word and repent. There are people who are made aware of their iniquity, their transgression and sin, and they turn to God in repentance and God forgives them. And it is his steadfast love that is driving this commandment to forgive. Let's take a closer look look at these three words, these three categories of unrighteousness, iniquity, transgression, and sin. This idea of iniquity literally means to turn aside from what is good. It has the idea of being twisted or perverted. Um, If you are building a deck in your backyard and you go to Home Depot or some lumberyard, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to pick up each board and you're going to look down it and you're going to find out whether it's true or not, right? You guys who do that kind of stuff? If you get one that's twisted, what do you do with it? You don't say, oh, it'll be all right. No, you say, I don't think so. And you go over to the next one. Why? Because you want something that is true. You don't want something that has turned aside or been twisted or perverted. The word perverted means to twist. Right? The word transgression then here, this has more, a more defiant word. It literally means rebellion. It's a willful violation of the terms of the covenant. It has the idea of betrayal. You may have heard this week that uh, Shikari Richardson, the gold medal favorite for the 100 meters uh, in the Olympics, was suspended um, for uh, the use of marijuana. 
She knew the rules. She chose to ignore the rules and run, hoping that she wouldn't get caught. And there's all sorts of explanations as to why she did what she did. But here's the point. These are the rules. And if you are exposed for what you did, then there are consequences. Right? Now, a transgressor is a person that says, I don't care about the rules. I'll do what I want. When I was growing up, Michigan, 1980s, that was a big statement. I do what I want. I do what I want. That's rebellion. And then there's this word sin, which is a far more general word. It simply means missing the mark of God's standard, any kind of moral failure. Now, I don't know if there's any people here that do archery. You've probably seen movies or read stuff about it. But let's use archery as kind of a, an analogy for these three words, right? The first one, iniquity, is like the archer getting up and he's, he goes to, to shoot the arrow, but the arrow is twisted, it's perverted. And so it goes, Right? It doesn't go where it's supposed to go. Then you've got this word transgression. The archer gets up and the target's over there, but they're like, oh, I don't want to shoot at that target. I want to shoot at my target. Right? So they shoot at another target. That's rebellion. The target's over there, but you're going to now create your own target. And then sin is simply missing the mark. So the archer goes out, shoots the arrow. It flies fine, but always misses, always falls short. So it's just a way to help help kind of get a picture of what these words are talking about. The point of these descriptions is to say that all offense against God is forgiven when man acknowledges his sin and repents. See, let's read it again. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God forgives these things. He forgives our rebellion. He forgives us of our perversion. He forgives us of constantly falling short of his glory. Isn't that what we read in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's his standard. This is the steady, loyal love of God at work toward those who come to him in humble repentance. This is the application of God's character to those repentant sinners. So there's forgiveness for the repentant, but there's also justice for the rebellious. This is the last part of this verse. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the, uh, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now in today's context, the word justice is losing its strength and its clarity. And primarily it's because it's being used toward those who are not guilty of committing a crime or living out a sin. And so we, we must recapture God's understanding as revealed in this passage. First of all, notice that God is just. When man commits iniquity, transgression, or sin, he is guilty of offending the merciful, gracious, patient, loving, trustworthy, and willing to forgive uh, God. Um, and such a man is truly guilty. And God, in his full being, has been slow to anger. But there is a point when God, in his long-suffering and his patience, comes to an end. And this is the point of 2 Peter, verses 3.19. It says this, The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is, God is holding out. He's holding out. 
He's being patient. God is not out to get the bad guy, so to speak. He's not marching to and fro on this earth looking uh, for, for a sinful man so he can cast them into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's not looking out to do that. No, God proves himself to be patient with man's iniquity. He holds back his anger to those who are rebellious. He takes a deep breath when man continues to sin, but he is a just God and must eventually act according to his character. And that is why we read, God will by no means clear the guilty. The guilty will not have a free pass. They won't get a slap on the wrist. Their iniquity, transgression, and sin will be punished fully and completely with true justice. And friends, think about it. To, to let the guilty off without consequence would be the epitome of injustice. Now, not only is God just, God is, or God visits, notice that. As you read in our text, we see that God uses the word visit. It's a word that means to attend to, to search something out. In other words, God will search out and bring judgment to the children who follow the example of their fathers and continue to rebel against uh, the Lord in unrepentance. Now, I want you to hear this. There's been a lot of misinformation and and, and, and misapplication of this text when it's taken out of its context. It isn't talking about a family being cursed for four generations. But it is talking about the influence of sin on a family for a number of generations. How do we know that? Well, think about it. We don't do this in these terms today, but in, in the ancient world, you would live with a lot of family. Now, some of you are saying, well, you don't know my family. I, I get that, right? But we talk about the, 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 the tents or the households. You would have you know, grandma and grandpa, you'd have the parents, you'd have the children, you'd have the grandchildren. That's four generations. And so you have someone who is living out a particular sin, and it's embraced then by the household. That whole household now is affected by their sinful choices, their sinful attitudes, their perspective, their beliefs, their practices. All of that will influence those who are part of the household and leave lasting impressions on the next generation for good or for evil. So it's a good thing for parents to ask themselves the question, what am I doing that is modeling an attitude, a behavior, a belief, or a practice that will affect my family for generations to come? Is it a heart of anger? Heart of deception? Is it sexual lust? Is it greediness? Is it pride? You say, this, whatever it is, this is the legacy I'm leaving my children. It's a daunting question, isn't it? Because we're all sinful beings. Or am I digging gospel roots by modeling godliness, trust in the Lord, prayer, hospitality, faithfulness and giving, readiness to forgive, etc.? Now, friends, it's a lie to say, my sin won't affect anyone else. At best, that's a selfish statement that means I have convinced myself that my sinful choice will benefit me, so I don't want to hear it from you or from God. I do what I want. But what you don't want to realize or admit is that your actions and behaviors do and are having an effect on those around you, especially in your family. And that's the point. That's the thrust here. This passage is teaching us that generations of families are affected because they've chosen not to listen to the tender, loving words of the merciful, gracious, 
patient and trustworthy God and instead press on in their iniquity, transgression, and sin. So you have thousands that respond to God's word in repentance. You have generations that respond to God's word in choosing to ignore it and therefore judgment. Now, I would like for us to, 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 to kind of play this out a little bit more in the books of Jonah and Nahum. So turn to the book of Jonah, if you would, please. Something interesting about Jonah and Nahum is both of them are minor prophets. Both of them are letters written to or about prophets that are interacting with Nineveh, which is a pagan city. All right? And they, they, if you remember, um, oh, by the way, Nahum is 100 years later. Right? So the first one we're going to look at is Jonah. And what we find in Jonah is, is God's grace applied. Jonah is all about God's grace offered to a Gentile people. Remember, Jonah goes into the city, he preaches this message of judgment, and on the backside of of a message of judgment is really the call to repentance. And surprisingly, Nineveh repents, right? And we read then chapter 4 and verse 2, here we we read why Jonah ultimately didn't want to go to Nineveh. Jonah 4 verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah has been a reluctant prophet because he knows the character of God, that he will be gracious to people when they repent. See, here we have Exodus chapter 34, 5 through 7, fleshed out now in an argument that says, this is how God works among a pagan people who hear God's truth and repent. He's gracious. He's merciful. Now turn to Nahum, just a few pages over. This is 100 years later. Nineveh's evil has risen to the point of judgment, which reminds us that a lot can happen in a hundred years. This time he brings not a message of grace and peace, this time he brings a war taunt that promises destruction to Nineveh and her wicked inhabitants. This ultimately would take place in 612 BC. Look at Nahum 1 verses 2 and 3. The Lord is jealous is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now there's more to be said in Nahum that goes right back to our text. The point here is this. In Jonah, we find the the grace of God applied to those who are repentant. In Nahum, we find God's judgment applied to those who remain in wickedness. But it all goes back to this revelation of who God is. This is the standard. This is the basis of the argument, even for Nahum's argument to the people of Nineveh. So the character of God Revealed, applied, and now celebrated. What we read about Jonah and Nahum is evidence of who God is. 
But now I want to focus really on some ways in which we can, together, we see this celebrated and we see the beauty of God's character in the pages of Scripture. For time, we're going to move fast through this, but I want you to hear in particular Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, the thing about Nehemiah chapter 9 is Nehemiah is the last narrative text in the Old Testament, right? So when you think about the story of the Old Testament, it ends with Nehemiah 9. With me so far? So you have Exodus, which is very much near the beginning, right? Genesis, of course, is before that. But in Exodus, you have the people of God established as a nation. In Nehemiah 9, we find now the people restored, right? The word of God is brought back at central. The, the walls of the city are built. It's not so much about the walls. It's about the health of the people. And the word is brought back. And now they are they're repented of their sin and they're making a covenant with God. And in chapter 9, what they're doing is they are reflecting back. This is a snapshot of God's interaction with Israel through the years. It's a confession. It's a reflection on the merciful and just God that they are serving. And it's an honest reflection, and it's, it's, it's a reminder of who they actually are and of God's kindness toward them. I just want to highlight a few key verses. Look at verse 17 and following. They refused, and so this is reflecting now on Israel. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You see what they're doing here? In this reflection, they're looking back now at the history of Israel, and they're using the character of God as the measuring stick to say, this is what you have done all through this time. Jump down to verse 30, and this is after they've been turned away from God over and over and over again. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. See, we just kind of see those words just kind of floating out there as, as descriptions. But these words are rooted in this self-revelation of who God is that are now being used as the argument or the reflection of God's dealings with Israel. Jump down then to verse 32. And here we have this confession. They recognize that God's been faithful and righteous in his dealings with them. It says, now therefore, our God the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been, what? Righteous. In all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. My friends, they are celebrating here that God has been righteous in his dealings with them through the years. We jump to the New Testament, and of course, Jesus now embodies the attributes given to us in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He's merciful, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, committed to covenant love. He's always trustworthy, right? John 1, 14 Jesus comes and he's being described as full of grace 
and truth. These are an expression of the description there, Exodus 34. Colossians 1.19 and 2.9 both say the same thing. For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he's the one that is now speaking to us in these last days. See, by looking to Jesus, we learn again that mercy and justice are not opposed to each other, but the natural fruit of the very essence, the very name, the very character of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 says the following. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justice and mercy, they meet on the cross and they pave the way for our salvation. Now, how does this all then play out for us? One last verse of scripture to leave you with. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 and following. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore God has highly exalted him, talking about Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, at the what? The name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. When you bow down to the name of Jesus, you bow to the very essence, the nature, and the fullness of Yahweh that you have in Exodus 34. So everyone will either bow in repentance and joy, or they will bow in rebellion and punishment. But hear this, they will bow. And so what we have in Exodus 34, and I've walked through it, I know, we've gone through a lot of detail, is the gospel. It is God's plan. It is his character fleshed out, repeated over and over and over again that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. So just five quick concluding thoughts. Number one, truly he is worthy of our attention. God is both dangerous and delightful. Just think about that. As you see his character, he's dangerous and he's delightful. If you're on the wrong side of his character, that's dangerous. If you're on the right side of his character, not because of anything you've done except that you've repented of your sin, he's delightful. Secondly, truly he is worthy of our trust. I mean, when you think about his love endures forever, all those times when God is saying, I've shown myself, I've shown myself, and Israel is saying, you've shown yourself, you have been just. He's saying to us through all of that, listen to me, I am trustworthy. I am to be believed. You can lean on me. You know what I'm going to do. You know how I'm going to act. So third, truly, he is worthy of our lives. What does it say in Romans 12, 1. King James, in my mind, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
right? This, this, is, this is all based on the mercy of God. Where's that word concept mercy come from? Ah, Exodus 34. Truly he is worthy of our worship. If this is who God is, I want to bow down to him. Not because I'm being forced to bow down, but because I delight to do it. And finally, truly, he is worthy of our reflection. And by that, I simply mean he's built into the habit of the church a regular time to reflect on who he is and what he has done for us. And we celebrate that today in the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is not some, somehow a mystical thing. It's not somehow there's something you know, mystically spiritual happening to you today. It is, it is not simply just, oh yeah, this happened in the past and we're remembering it. There is a dynamic that is certainly happening because we're being obedient to it. God is working through it. But he is worthy of our reflection. Because we're reminded then how over and over and over again, his gospel, his presence, his being, his name has been actively at work in our lives. And it's marked off by this reality that we are now his children, saved by his sacrifice with his body and his blood. And so we celebrate that together today. Now friends, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're visiting with us and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want you to come and participate in that. We want you to, to join with us. And we're kind of going back to um, the way we used to do it, right? Kind of weird to say that. Um, we're going to come forward, get the elements, go back to our seats, and we're going to take them together. However, the elements are still those little prepackaged things uh, with the wafer on the top and the juice on the bottom, okay? But we're going to sing a song because, you know, all of this lands on Christ. He is the answer. He is, he is the reason why we can look back at Exodus 34 and say that God has been at work because we see him as the fulfillment. And so we're going to reflect now as we think about what the Lord has done. But let's, as, the, as, the, as I pray and then as the band begins, let's just take some time to, to, to quiet our hearts, to reflect on all that has been dumped on us this morning and that the Holy Spirit would use that to, to, to feed in us a, a heart of gratitude and thankfulness to reflect on, on what Jesus Christ has done. And um, uh, let's do that now. Lord, we thank you. Um, it's amazing, Lord, how pervasive you are, in particular in the Old Testament, in having your character and your being and your name so fully on display, so fully leaned upon, so fully um, the, the means by which your people are anchoring themselves as they journey through life. And Lord, I ask that as we now reflect on what we've listened and we've heard and we've studied, that we would lift it above the academic and we would settle down into what is true and real, that you are our God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and 
steadfast in your love, forever faithful. And for we who recognize ourselves as being full of sin, iniquity, transgression, who have come to you in repentance, have received forgiveness through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Lord, when we realize the totality of that, Lord, it just makes your gospel scream that much louder. That you would have thought of us, that you did think of us, that you pursued us, that you drew us to yourself. And Lord, you sent your son to die. We're humbled by that, Lord. And help us, Lord, even today as we, we, we celebrate in our country a freedom that we have. Lord, oh, what a freedom we have in you because of who you are and what you've done. Help us with that, Lord, we ask in your precious name.